Welcome to Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm wicked stressed film scholar Noella Croy. And I am part of the first, as you kids call it, but I'm also me, story expert Lonnie Diane Rich, and we are here today to talk about Touched, the 20th episode of season seven. Touched aired on May 6, 2003, and was written by Rebecca Rand Kirshner and directed by David Solomon. Still Pretty is a fully spoiled, full-spectrum Buffy podcast, so if you haven't seen all of the show, go take care of that and we'll find some way of having constructive dialogue without going completely mad. When I say I love you, it's not because I want you or because I can't have you. It has nothing to do with me. I love what you are, what you do, how you try. I've seen your kindness and your strength. I've seen the best and the worst of you. And I understand with perfect clarity exactly what you are. You're a hell of a woman. You're the one. Let's go on patrol. At the Summer's house, everyone is arguing and no one can come up with a plan. While Amanda explains Robert's rules of order, Dawn feels terrible. As she should. The lights go out as even the electric company decides to get the hell out of Dodge. The girls jump and look for candles, but out on the streets of Sunnydale, Buffy just watches as people abandon their homes. She busts into one, and the man who owns it puts a gun in her face. She says she was just looking for a place to crash, and he needs to get out of town anyway, so she just goes into his fridge like she owns the place, because nothing matters. Got any tap? Out at the mission, Spike and Andrew are waiting for sunset so they can head back to Sunnydale. And they're playing I Spy, and it's adorable, except Spike doesn't want to play because he's too worried about Buffy. Meanwhile, the summer's basement is filled way past capacity while everyone weighs in on where they go from here. Faith takes charge because someone has to, but it's not a popular move. At the winery, bringers are hard at work trying to free something from a big boulder while Caleb and the first watch concerned about what will happen if the Slayer and the Potentials get a hold of what's inside. They won't. That's right. They won't. Because you're going to kill all of them. And everyone they know. Kennedy walks outside in Sunnydale at night, which seems like a bad idea considering the town is lousy with bringers, who immediately attack. Turns out it's an ambush and the good guys attack back, taking a bringer prisoner. The bringer doesn't speak though, so Dawn comes up with the idea of using an ancient Turkish spell to communicate with the dying which Dawn already read in the original ancient Turkish, because Dawn is a badass. Willow's into it, and just as they're getting their plan together, Spike and Andrew return and report in what they found at the mission. And then Spike asks where Buffy is. Willow tries to explain what happened using very diplomatic language, but Spike is having none of that bullshit. You sad, sad, ungrateful traitors. Spike lets loose on all of them, but Faith interrupts and they fight, because they are Spike and Faith. He wants to know where Buffy is, but they don't know, so he drops out of the fight, goes outside, and takes a deep sniff. In the basement, Willow tries the spell, and Andrew goes into a trance and starts talking for the bringer. Using the royal we, which is a choice, the bringer tells them that they are going to kill all the girls and laugh as they die, so Giles takes the bringer's knife and slits its throat, which releases Andrew. So used and violated and... I need a lozenge. At the house that Buffy stole, Buffy is curled up in bed when there's knocking at the door, which she ignores. Spike walks in, no invite necessary since the owner has left. Spike rants about Faith and tells Buffy she was right about Caleb and the vineyard. But none of that matters to a clearly defeated Buffy. 
Back at Slayer Central, Faith goes up to bed and bumps into the first wearing a mayor suit, there to fuck with her mind using a super chipper demeanor. Faith isn't fooled, but the first doesn't give up, insisting that if Faith gives Buffy a chance, Buffy will try to kill her again. Meanwhile, Spike and Buffy talk about what she's facing, how she got girls killed because she cut herself off from them. She says that's the only reason he wanted her, because she was unattainable. But Spike pushes back, telling her that she's the only thing he's ever been certain of. She's a hell of a woman. She's the one. Buffy, however, does not want to be the one. I don't want to be this good-looking and athletic. We all have crosses to bear. Buffy's feeling better, so Spike decides to head to another bedroom and they'll figure out the plan in the morning. Buffy asks him to stay with her, just hold her. Spike crawls into bed and does just that. Back at Slayer Central, the first mayor is still working on Faith, but she tells him to leave, and he does. Robin Wood walks in and talks to her about the first, and Faith is creeped out, worried about taking the girls back to the vineyard in the morning. But for now, the two of them are in a darkened bedroom with all that chemistry sparking all over the place, so why the hell not, right? Also taking advantage of the sexual charge brought on by imminent death are Willow and Kennedy in their room, and Xander and Anya on the kitchen floor. Meanwhile, Spike just holds Buffy while she sleeps, and the first watches all of it, envious. I want to feel. I want to wrap my hands around some innocent neck and feel it crack. Back at Slayer Central, Faith is giving orders and ready to head out to the vineyard to retrieve the weapon Andrew and Spike found out about at the mission. Faith tells the original Scoobies to make sure that Buffy's okay, and tells Robin to stand by his phone, which he doesn't appreciate, but whatever. Faith's got a job to do. She selects her team and heads out. At the house the Slayer stole, Spike wakes up alone and finds a note from Buffy. Buffy, meanwhile, is at the vineyard confronting Caleb. Her strategy is to use her speed to avoid his punches while she darts past him to get to the weapon he's hiding. Meanwhile, Faith and the Potentials come up through the sewers to find a cache of weapons. The bringers attack. Buffy manages to get past Caleb and dive through a trapdoor into the level below where she finds a shiny red scythe buried in a stone. And she smiles. Faith and the Potentials get past the bringers and find a crate. Faith kicks it open to reveal a beeping bomb. Everybody get down! All right, Noel. So here we are with Touched, episode 20 of season seven, and I still can't believe we're almost at the end. How do you respond to this episode? Um, I like bits of it. I love seeing the mayor again. I always mm -hmm. love Sarah Michelle Geller as the first. I really like Faith trying her best to be a leader, and I like mm -hmm. Anya and Xander and the communion of apocalypse. Uh, <laughs> the communion of apocalypse ice cream, which I wrote but can't say. So there you go. Um, but I don't, I don't have real strong feelings about this episode. What about you? Um, okay. It, it, the episode itself is kind of a mixed bag. There's good stuff. There's stuff that's, you know, not so great. But the moment, of course, with Spike and Buffy. Um, is possibly my favorite moment in all of the run of Buffy. This is what I watch all seven seasons of Buffy to get to. <laughs> I'm going to talk about that in great detail, of course, later on in the episode. Um, but I do think that this is a good episode. It's kind of a good turning point. Um, what's interesting to me as we move into our discussion of world building and themes um, is the thing that I kind of wanted from this season to begin with, which is that here we have a non-corporeal, you know, big bad. 
And how does that interact with the corporeal way in which Buffy has always expressed in a physical fight, you know, kind of space? Um, and so I find that kind of like a really interesting thing to, pardon me, touch on <laughs> at this point yeah. after we sort of gave that up. What did you find in that? Well, I'm fascinated by the relationship of the first and touch. And I think this is the first time that we really get that spelled out in any sort of direct way by the show. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when the first says it envies humans because they're able to make physical contact with one another. And it's that moment where I kind of go, oh, yeah, like we're really dealing with this incorporeal evil. But what does that all mean? Because mm -hmm. the first the first clearly retains memories and information from the people it appears as, right? So mm -hmm. it channels someone or whatever, whatever it does. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but but it is it in this episode pointedly like, no, I I am this person right now. I mean, mm -hmm. it, I love seeing the mayor. The mayor is delightful. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yes. And his whole ask me a question only I would know bit is so wonderful. Mm -hmm. But it also gives us this new information about the first and how it works. Mm -hmm. um, so the first says it envies humans ability to touch each other. But presumably it has the memories of having been corporeal or does or not mm -hmm. the memories but it has access to if it has access to the memories of the people that it inhabits or channels or whatever does it remember being corporeal does it remember the physical experiences of those people well i mean maybe but also isn't there something to not just remembering what it feels like, but to in the moment making a choice to touch or be touched and then being able to experience that as yourself, like even if they can remember um, you know, what the, the, the mayor suit, you know, running yeah. around in the mayor suit, even if they can re like remember what it was like to be the mayor, those weren't those choices. Like, I think there's something in being able to actively, you know, I want to wrap my hand around an innocent neck and feel it crack. Right. You know, like there is that I want to do this thing that I want to do because I chose to do it. And maybe there is an element of, um, you know, of that agency yeah. that that the first is missing. But it seems like that's the first indication that mm -hmm. we get of anything, like any sort of I want. What does it want? From the yes. first? Like, what it is, has no I want song. Where is the I want song? Because, okay, so. Exactly. so like, I want to feel exactly people are. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it, so Caleb says, Caleb says the first is everywhere. Mm -hmm. But it can't really experience everything because, as you say, it doesn't have the agency to touch or be touched. It can't make that mm -hmm. choice. The closest it can come to any sort of tactile experience mm -hmm. of humanity is in the memory, presumably, in the sense yeah. memory of these people that it inhabits. So is that what it wants? Does it want to be embodied I'm so not I'm I'm I love this. I I yeah. love this like it's everywhere but it's also nowhere because it can't experience things physically but is that what it wants? Is that what we're oh supposed my to God. get from this? 
How wonderful would that have been, though? But here we are, right? Okay. So we we go to Buffy, right, who is isolated because she is the Slayer. We visit that later in her, her interaction with Spike, where she's talking about how I don't want to be the one. Being the one sets me apart. It sets makes me separate, right? And then here we have, on the other side, the first evil, the one, right? So you've got two ones, right? Mm -hmm. One of which is wearing the suit of the other. So, I mean, there's all of that. But there's so much reflection here, you know? Um, And how wonderful would it have been if the first evil was just interested in all of this so that they could be corporeal? That it's not about anything except I want to feel I want to experience I want to put my hands around the neck of an innocent person and feel it crack that if the first was done being the one the first and had only wanted in all of this pursuit to go into this corporeal space to exist in this corporeal space but while it's working toward that is fucking with everybody in this non-corporeal space while all of our fighters are used to physical fighting. All of Buffy's superpowers are physical. So like I talked about this early on in the season, and this is something that we started sort of messing with, but then we went in the other direction where we've got the physicality of the bringers. And then we've got the physicality of Caleb kind of standing in and creating a corporeal fight so that Buffy can have something to punch. I think the lack of having something to punch is what the potential of this part of my expression, the potential of the season where it lived, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea, like, And I love that moment here in this episode and the idea of bringing that touch in, you know, in this episode in which we're talking about not just being physically touched, but being emotionally touched. When you talk about the interaction with Buffy and Spike, Um, we're it's it's such it's such a swing and a miss. Mm -hmm. But yet it would have been so great to have this final villain be this this opposite reflection of Buffy wanting what Buffy has, which is that corporeal existence. Yeah. Yeah. Especially since she has come back, right? She's been re-embodied. And then the Mm -hmm. first spends all of this time as Buffy, which I think Mm -hmm. is compelling visually and it's a nice foil for Caleb. But yeah. It's almost like they set themselves up a, you know, like a really nice metaphor, but then didn't fully explore it it's beautiful there's so much that could have been done with that it's such a lovely like mix and it's just laying there not pardon me touched yeah makes me crazy because it's such incredible like and again potential like i i can't apparently speak in any other language than the language of this season you know yeah um but yeah it's just it's such it's such a missed opportunity but what Um, and what a fascinating opportunity to explore a villain who is envious of yes. the thing that it's fighting like that fe- or fighting or or trying to destroy yeah that's i mean that's not a unique theme to buffy certainly but what a but fun awesome. like what a fun villain <laughs> mm-hmm. i want to destroy yeah. the thing but i also want to be it it's kind of i want to be the thing yeah. yeah and to have the first simply want a, a human experience and to have and also like the idea of the power vacuum that if the first evil 
gives up its oneness, which is something that Buffy also struggles with. Oh, yeah. And then there's a power vacuum as all of the other forces of evil are trying to come in and take that space. That could have been so fascinating, so interesting. Like, oh, well, and giving up its everywhereness, too. Right. Because presumably Caleb, Caleb gives that lovely little speech about how to the first about how you're everywhere you're in yeah. the hearts of children, your sin, which is another idea yeah. that we don't really expand upon on this show. But mm-hmm. like, you know, that could be cool. But presumably, if the first were to become corporeal, like, could it be corporeal and eternal? Or yeah. would it have to give up being everywhere? It's eternalness. But wouldn't you? Like, I mean, I mean, honestly, like, wouldn't that be an amazing thing for the first to actually have as a goal something? And again, like, you know, I've talked about in storytelling that a personal specific goal is so important. And to that is an incredibly personal goal for something that has been impersonal for so long that it doesn't care about being everywhere. It doesn't care about being immortal. It wants to touch. Mm-hmm. It wants to uh, affect you know people um and so like that i think would have been incredible and i love that idea so much and it's all just sitting there and yet not picked up and not run with and that makes it so incredibly frustrating because it was bad enough when we sort of started the season in this direction and then dropped it like a hot potato but then to come back in this episode and hit those themes so strongly in a way that like if we had just played through you know, those those middle golf holes like that in that same vein. And this would have been, I think, possibly like one of the best episodes of Buffy where all of that crystallizes and we have this battle wherein the the first wants to be alive, wants to be physical, and then to have Buffy then defeat it physically at that point after whatever mental, emotional challenges presented by the way in which the first fucks with you she would have had to overcome as well that would have been amazing and again but that's a would have been yeah it's a would have been it's a could have been but it's a not something that we had so out of what we have here (gasps) what did you think about the 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 change in the visual storytelling going on okay so huge pivot right because buffy is buffy has left the building and Mm -hmm. The first thing I noticed about this episode is that Buffy's gone and now the world of the show breaks down, by which I mean mm-hmm. the the filmmaking, the television production breaks down. The camera is suddenly yeah. handheld mm-hmm. in the, the summer's living room, just darting from person to person. The sound quality is really odd. It's almost mm-hmm. like they didn't. It it almost seems amateurish, but I think it works yeah. because it mm-hmm. sounds like there's one microphone and it's trying to follow everyone, but it can't. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we get all of this overlapping chatter. We get this erratic camera as everyone's trying to find, oh, how do we do this? How do we how do we argue? How do we argue about arguing? Mm-hmm. And even the the camera, even the show itself kind of can't mm-hmm. find its footing in that yeah. first scene in the living room. And I just love that. I love that reflection. And then later in the mm-hmm. basement, it it calms down a little bit. We still have a, a handheld camera and we're still kind of whipping from one person to the next. But the sound mm-hmm. recording is a little better. So like slowly, and I think it's as Faith kind of moves into this reluctant leadership mm-hmm. position yeah. that we kind of get 
settled a little bit more, but it was such an interesting way to bring us into like this new Mm -hmm. world of the Summer's House and the potentials and Slayer Central and what is going on? Who are we supposed to be following? Which Mm -hmm. conversation is the one that we need to be listening to? You know, as the audience, it it brings us into the experience of that moment and that space really, really nicely. Yeah. And, and we actually have a three beat of those scenes, too. And the, the first one is completely off, both the sound and the visuals. The second one, the sound gets better. The visuals get a little bit better. Um, and then we go into the third one at the end where Faith is rounding up her team, getting ready to go. She tells the Scoobies to check on Buffy and everything is almost back to normal. It's like we've almost gotten our balance back. The camera visually is whipping around a little bit, but it's not as unstable as it was. So I think it really is this representation of this very unstable situation slowly stabilizing. Yeah, and the focus coming back to faith, like in that three beat. I didn't, you're right, mm-hmm. I didn't catch it as a as a three beat, but it really is because yeah. we come back to faith and we come back to faith and we sort of reorient on her mm-hmm. in that scene in a, okay, she really is the leader of this operation now kind of yeah. way. It's nice. It's one of those, it's, it's, one of the things about the show that I really appreciate is that kind of attention to detail with the mm-hmm. on the on the production end of things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is David Solomon, who's one of our, you know, directors of Buffy. He's done a, a ton of Buffy episodes and he's a very experienced director. So there are some times where things happen and you're like, do they realize what Did they, they know what they were doing with that? <laughs> but I definitely see this progression in the three beat from unstable to stable as something that they are absolutely reflecting how it feels to be in that room. I think that the more faith takes control, the more you feel secure in the space. You know, um, and it's interesting because in the in the basement scene in which we have just a couple of people when they brought the bringer back and then they've got him talking through Andrew, that is very stably like shot and audio and everything in that is done in very stable house style. It is mm-hmm. only in these situations where we've got all of the potentials. We've got faith trying to herd these cats, you know, mm-hmm. and figure everything out that that things slowly progress to a more stable thing. And I think that that's it's an interesting choice in the way that they they do shoot this. This is, you know, slightly outside or, you know, a lot outside of, of general house Buffy style. Um, one of the things that I love about the storytelling um, in this episode, and this is the episode I've, I've talked uh, quite a lot uh, across various episodes about the difference between love story and romance. And the first thing that um, the first time I really kind of crystallized on that idea was watching this episode. Um, and, uh, you know, I've talked about it in a few places, but for those of you who who haven't heard it before, here are the basics of it. Um, There's a difference between romance and love story. Romances are about desire and longing. They are not necessarily really about love. Um, They can be also about love, uh, but the huge sweeping drama and the grand gestures and everything, the hyperbole that is in, you know, these big romances are mostly about attainment. Um, And this is why, you know, like people who study television, study storytelling, you always hear that once a couple sleeps together, it's over. Nobody cares anymore. It's what I call the moonlighting effect. Um, And for those of you 
probably most of you are too young to remember Moonlighting. Uh, Moonlighting was a show from the 80s starring Sybil Shepard and Bruce Willis. Uh, and once the central couple finally slept together, the show died. Uh, this is an instance of correlation does not equal causation. However, everybody blamed it on the fact that they had slept together. Uh, there are a lot of other reasons why that show died. If you are interested in hearing me talk about that, uh, search Hallowed Ground Storycast uh, podcast, uh, Moonlighting, and we talk about that for a full hour. You will get all the information you never wanted about moonlighting in that. <laughs> um, but anyway, what it comes down to is that romance is about longing and desire. It is internally focused and it is essentially immature. You know, I want you. I must have you. It is about me. It is it is central on the person who has the desire. Um, but a love story is about two people who are fundamentally good together, who care deeply about each other and who are interested in each other's well-being over their own desires. And this is a mature expression of love. I love you and I want what is best for you, regardless of whether what is best for you is me. It is not about attainment. It is about just loving somebody. Um, so romance is about the desire. A love story is about the relationship. Um, and because a romance is about longing and desire, once that longing and desire are fulfilled, usually by having sex, then often there's nothing else really there. Um, but if the romance also has at its core a solid love story, then having sex won't kill your storytelling potential there. That is clearly demonstrated here with Spike. Um, but you can also see it in Parks and Rec when Ben and Leslie get together. Uh, Pride and Prejudice is a really great example of both romance and love story um, because it has both as both of our heroes you know, work in tandem. Um, um, and that's why it's been so popular through the years. Darcy starts out romantic and then moves into love. He goes from immature to mature love. Elizabeth starts out aromantic. She wants nothing to do with him and then falls into love. And at the end, they're both in a love story. And watching that arc is what makes that story so powerful. Um, Spike and Buffy are both a romance and a love story, but in such an interesting way. Like Spike wants Buffy and falls in love with her, but his love is always tinged with his essential darkness, which means he can never truly have her. I mean, even when they have sex, it's physically satisfying. I mean, clearly they fucked a house down, but emotionally destructive for both of them, which the metaphor of the house also works really well there. <laughs> so even in the attainment, Spike can't have what he wants, which is her love. And his lack of a soul means he can never really maturely love her. And once he gets a soul, he can love her maturely, at which point he realizes that he's no good for her. And since he wants what's best for her, he stops trying with her. Um, he is there to help, and that is all. If she asked him to leave, he would. He offers multiple times to get lost in season seven, and he stays only because she asks him to. Um, but Spike and Buffy are also a love story. Um, and, I, you know, I contend that Spike falls in love with Buffy in season two when he's watching her on those videos fighting. Um, you know, I love what you are. I love how you try. That starts then. Um, from there, we slowly build up that Buffy and Spike work well together. When they fight together, they make a solid team. That's another part of a good love story. And he transitions from enemy to sort of team member when he gets his chip, but he's stuck between these two existences, right? I know I'm a monster, but you treat me like a man. And Buffy, for her part, needs Spike. He, she... Mm. And Buffy, for her part, needs Spike. She isn't honest with the men in her life. I mean, I think Angel at first, um, but after the events of um, Surprise and Innocence, I think that she started withholding herself. And then after he left at the end of season three, um, I think she became too afraid of people leaving her and she would not 
show herself. She would not give herself. She would cut herself off. Um, Spike, she doesn't care what Spike thinks. So that means that he's the only one that she can truly be herself with. He's the only one who completely knows her and sees the best and the worst of her. So now we get to season seven where Spike has a soul, finally can love her maturely, but he expresses that love by not acting on his desire for her. He wants what is best for her and he knows that's not him and that is a pure love. Um, and for what it's worth, I would argue that Buffy also loves Spike. He is her safe place. He has seen the best and the worst of her. He understands with perfect clarity what she is. It's a love story, and that's why it works. Romance is ephemeral. It is of the moment. Love is eternal. Mixing them is incredibly powerful, but you have to get that balance right. Um, and you see that happen. Elizabeth and Darcy, Ben and Leslie, Spike and Buffy. Whether or not they are together is really irrelevant. The joy is in watching them love each other anyway. Hmm. So I have, I have one qualm. <laughs> Go ahead. I have one. I know there are lots of people out there who have loads of qualms. So well, I have. I mean, speaking. okay. Yeah. I think. I I don't know. I want to like. I want to problematize a piece of this, which mm -hmm. is that so many of these couples. I'm certainly Buffy and Spike. Mm -hmm. Start out in a place where they don't like each other or where they are opposed yeah. to each other in some way and does that not rub you the wrong way like can it be a can it be a true love story if they don't like each other right away and this is because because mm -hmm. i think we have a colossal lack in storytelling when it comes to the idea that that people could be friends and partners mm -hmm. it's i think i don't know i don't know that i would distinguish between a romance and a love story in the same way that you do because all of the examples that you give start off with some sort of friction mm -hmm. between the people in question and i wonder if that's because as a society, we have decided that you cannot be friends and a couple, that there has to be that friction or the 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 couple can't exist. Like, I cannot right. think which which feels oddly toxic to me that like oh, the, totally. hint, yeah. the hint that someone is right for you is that you don't like them at first. That seems like. <laughs> You know, or they don't like you yeah. or you're like mm -hmm. opposed to each other in some way. And I wonder if it's because we have this false dichotomy that says friends is one thing and a romantic or sexual partnership is another thing. And these things are separate mm -hmm. and that you don't yeah. have and that the that a partner relationship whether it's, you know, whether it's for a day or a lifetime, however, you know, whatever story you're telling there is somehow different from a friendship. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. OK, here's where I think we um, 
Yeah, I don't know which is leading. I think that we have characters who fight because conflict is essential to fiction. And all writers know that. And so you start out with people who don't like each other and you arc them. Also starting in one condition and arcing to another condition and hate being, uh, you know, as far as as we are, hate is not in reality the opposite of love. Apathy is the opposite of love. And indifference is the opposite of love, as we've been told a number of times. Actually, I don't know if that's really true. I haven't really interrogated I don't know if that's true either. But but you hear about about that but that's kind of one of the things you hear heard that idea you hear exactly but i mean let's let's say hate is the opposite of love right and so we have these two people who really really hate each other and then we arc them into another space like in fiction that arc changing from one condition to another is part of the fun of fiction it's part of how things change tells us how the world works conflict is one of those things that we like to have in fiction it really you know it's it's absolutely essential that you have a narrative conflict at the center of fiction but a lot of times we have these like lower level conflict um, on how story works I talk about the difference between narrative conflict and mundane conflict if you want to go to the conflict season number two of how story works conversations you will get more than you ever wanted to know about that um, but I think that there's a lot of mundane conflict a lot of this kind of like bickering that we have been sort of trained to see in these fictional stories because it can be fun and we're arcing them from hate to love yes completely fucking toxic absolutely on your side there totally agree i think it comes from this kind of element of fiction where we like to arc you know from one circumstance to its opposite so i think that that's how that happens yes all three of these that I pointed out do start out in opposition with each other. They do start out fighting. Um, and I think that that does kind of send a message that the fight is sexy, right? You know, we have the the idea of the hot, hot, hot makeup sex because you fought, you know? Yeah. Um, all of that, yes, in real relationships, absolutely toxic. And it finds our way into our fiction because we like to have all manner of conflict in fiction, including that mundane sort of bickering conflict. Um, that said, the one thing that I have promoted from the beginning, and I say a million times, is that the way to build a good couple is to have people who work well together, who work well as a team, that that is when you build a really fantastic couple. And you can absolutely 1000% do that without this opening gambit of, oh, we hate each other. You know, um, you can do that where people are absolutely it's just that like you've there has to be for the longing to which is one of the things that we respond to so much in our romantic stories for that longing to engage there has to be a reason why they can't be together. And sometimes you'll get something, you know, pretty solid, like, you know, no matter what Juliet does, nothing is going to make her not a Capulet, you know, like mm -hmm. those are very core conflicts that come from society keeping people, you know, a couple that wants to be together apart. Um, so there's a lot of very, very complicated things in that. But yeah, does that reveal kind of a toxic tendency? in relationships for people to kind of go to fiction and then believe that the best relationships or the the most passionate love relationships are going to be ones that start out in in toxic hatred yeah i mean definitely i think there's probably that danger there i i would i would argue that regardless of whether that danger exists in the in the like cultural way that our stories affect us within the narrative bounds of a story itself I think the the love story versus romance idea stands. I think it does, and I think that they that can. Makes sense. I think yeah. that they can go together. Certainly, I I yes. like I like that you clarify that you can have one or the other or both. 
Yes. But it Mm -hmm. is fascinating to me that so often it's almost like the signal that this is going to be a couple, whether it's a romantic story or a love story or both, is they're at odds with each other. Like they don't they don't go together. Like they aren't I, I don't know. It's just it's such a such a weird little Bit Not of with Tara cultural and Willow, mirroring. Not with Tara and Willow, though. That's true. Tara and Willow started out in Hush, and we knew they were great together. They worked so well together immediately. They understood something about each yeah. other immediately, too. And Tara and Willow were a great love story. Yeah. I don't think that they were a big, like, as far as my definition of romance, this whole heart-rending, you know, they, they worked well together. They were a good Uh, love story and when they had problems like you know when Tara got brain sucked you know by Glory um, that love was very clearly at the core of that relationship still you know Um, so yeah I I I, you don't need to have that bickering and that toxicity and that separation at the beginning it does make for good fiction and that is a problem in what it tells us about our relationships like the romantic relationships and how they work um because a true a truly good solid love story is based in good teamwork and in solid friendship you know absolutely and i think that you can do that in fiction too it's just that often we don't because this is a lot of fun because the bickering and all of that conflict is a lot of fun. Well, and I wonder if it if it goes back to this idea that friendship isn't sexy. Yeah. That these are two yeah. different categories of things. That there's like, mm-hmm. there's friendship and that can be loving and connected, but it's not sexy. Mm-hmm. I think that it Which, is, though. Like, I, oh, it, you know, oh, it absolutely is. I just think that the idea is very much out there. I think it's not the first thing we think of, but the, the the love stories, the romances that come from two people who are best friends and then realize they are in love with each other. I love that from friends to, you know, but even when Harry met Sally, right, which is well, all about two people who are friends. Yeah, they hate they each hate other for the each first. other to start. That, it yeah. was funny. Yeah. I was thinking mm-hmm. about that, that film specifically because it does yeah. do, I mean, it it sets up this expectation mm-hmm. and then proves itself right right like it doesn't yeah it, you know it, it comes like to it, a toxic conclusion absolutely but yeah. it but they do start you know yes they start out as friends before they are a couple but before they are friends they hate each other they hate each other yeah and that's part of the like, fun i mean it, you know it's part of the fun of it is and when maybe they, this is yeah. someone's experience in the world like maybe this really mm-hmm. is someone's experience i i mean the the story is told enough times that i imagine that this is a thing that happens that people mm-hmm. meet they don't like each other and then they become best friends or they become life partners or whatever this must happen but it is so it feels so um but it feels kind of toxic like it feels unhealthy to me yeah like what is going on like what i mean a very interesting narrative is what's going on but i was gonna say what is going on if you start out and you're like no you know what fuck this person (laughs) like that's (laughs) and that's where you start like to get i mean yeah it's it's it is good conflict in the sense that you have to do some serious mental and emotional gymnastics to get from fuck this person to fuck this person. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like, I mean, <laughs> maybe I do. Maybe yeah. what I'm actually yeah. showing is my own my own wiring here. And the like, yeah, 
if I don't like someone, like it is very, very unlikely that I will even want to become friends with somebody mm-hmm. that I don't like. Right. Living in a relationship where you hate somebody and then you grow to love them, I think is a different thing from watching that happen in fiction, which is where it's really fun. It is really fun, which is why we do it all the time. But there are like absolutely, I am going to say narratively and in fiction, you can and people have. I'm failing to pull up an example off the top of my head, but I know they're out there. Uh, have told stories where people who are good friends and who work really well together end up falling in love. And that does happen. Um, you know, and and I think that you can tell a very good, compelling narrative without that they hate each other thing. Yeah. But from a fiction standpoint, it is a really fun arc to do it also presents the internal conflict of i hate this person but i'm attracted to this person that is a lot of fun to play with it's just fun it yes in a real environment it would be toxic and it does i think i i i i I reject this idea that i've seen presented that uh like romance stories set people up to have false expectations of actual romance i think that people in general are smarter than that and can tell the difference between fiction and reality don't at all (laughs) (laughs) i don't i think i i don't think so i think that a lot of people a lot of people look to narrative as a kind of it's it's a kind of a a a mirror but like a like almost like a mirrored mm-hmm. box where you're looking at i'm looking at a reflection but also a projection and also yeah. a a template mm-hmm. for this is this is what relationships are mm-hmm. i mean this is why this is why it's so difficult for a lot of people to imagine yeah. a fulfilling yeah. future I mean, for themselves enough. because they've never yeah. seen like you know i mean i'm jumping ahead here but like this episode of buffy is the first time that we have a lesbian sex scene on network television mm-hmm. but what we don't have on network television for a very long time is mm-hmm. lesbian domesticity In fact, Mm -hmm. I still can't think of a great example of like mundane, mundane queer relationship, you know, Mm -hmm. day to day representation. Yeah. That is still sorely lacking on television. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if you are, you know, if you're a little queer kid watching television learning about you know the world and relationships and you know because we learn about our world through the stories that we tell Mm -hmm. who you see Mm -hmm. and how you see them is going to shape your expectations and your understanding of what is possible for you Mm -hmm. in the same way that if we normalize oh well if he makes fun of you it means he likes you right yeah then you have you have people tolerating attention that makes them feel uncomfortable because they believe that that is indicative of love or a positive relationship so Mm -hmm. i think that i i think that that untangling the difference Mm -hmm. you know the differences among 
media and our real lives is it, it, it's an yeah. interesting problematic right. like, long-term sort of process yeah you're right i actually take back everything i said about <laughs> i take it back because as you're talking i'm like yeah you know what they're right because um because the we Stories like I talk about how incredibly powerful stories are that stories train us how to think about our lives and the world around us. And absolutely they do. And I think that when you have something with which you have not had personal experience, you know, like at this point in my life, I look at this stuff and I'm like, all right, I know how this works. You know, like I know how this works for me. But, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking back to when I was 18, when I was a kid, I was looking for and, you know, here we come back around to moonlighting. I was looking for David Addison right? The fast talking, funny guy who's going to sing Motown songs to me. And I found one. And in reality, that was not great because that guy was all about the performance, you know, and all about pretending to be something smooth and nothing in that was actually genuine expression. It was all performance and pretend. And I found that out eventually and got my heart broken and then moved on because, you know, life goes on. Um, but yeah, my expectation before I had personal experience was that now, now, you know, with my wealth of life experience, I look at a lot of these things and I'm like, okay, I get why we do this. It's part of that narrative function. Um, and I can see that difference, but yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. We do train people in a million different things, representation being just one of them. When you see somebody like you living a life, you see that as possible. So having that representation in our media is incredibly important. And I've always felt that way. And I think that having healthy, non-toxic relationship representation in media as well, also very important. You are right. I concede the point. <laughs> Absolutely concede the point. And, and fiction mm -hmm. is fantasy mm -hmm. right yes so being able to being able to enjoy you know like i love a screwball comedy mm -hmm. i love a 1940 screwball comedy where often couples will literally hit each other oh, yeah. and it's and it's like great somehow but that is a fantasy mm -hmm. and being able to being able to parse that, I mean, there there is a maturity of just the the life experience of the viewer mm -hmm. factors in as well. Yeah. Um, to understanding, you know, this is on screen because we're doing this on screen because it's fun or because it's cathartic or because it's pretty mm -hmm. or because it's, you know, this is a way that we can touch on emotions or taboos or things that like are not so easy to parse out yeah. in our real lives um but then but then to try to bring that you know if we try to bring what we see in stories literally into our lives that's a recipe for real problems yeah. because you know we do all go around pretending to be things and it's very you know accepting things that feel uncomfortable yeah. it's really it's i mean it's very very it's very tricky and very interesting and this is why you know this is the kind of thing that that people write wonderful scholarly books sure. and papers about <laughs> because <laughs> it's complex like... because it's never all one thing because yes it is fantasy but yes it also shows us what life can be like and we talk about truth through fiction we lie to get to truth 
So what is lie and what is truth and how do we parse all of that out? It's all incredibly complicated. It is fascinating and I love it. And I think that there is a space for like for all of the arguments that we're making in having this discussion. I think what the important thing is, is that more people need to be having these discussions themselves and need to be thinking critically about their media. Um, my good friend, Dr. Sharice Laprie says media literacy is being able to see the things that you are actively being discouraged from seeing. And I think that that is something where in everything, not just in fiction, not just in media, but in everything, looking at everything that you are presented with, with a critical eye, without necessarily being cynical. It's a very, very difficult line to ride. Um, but I think it's very important and it's a skill set that we are not encouraged to develop that we really do need to develop. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that that's a, it's a fascinating discussion. And, you know, and definitely you make some really, really, really great points. Um, but let's move on from that now and go into uh, like some of our character beats. Um, okay. Can we just take a moment for faith? Because, oh, I my God. Faith. Right? Oh, my God. I mean, talk about like interesting and problematic, right? Mm -hmm. But I love faith. I love the little journey that we go on with faith in this episode. Mm -hmm. I love that in the chaos of discussion and discussion about discussion, Robin asks Faith what she thinks. Mm -hmm. And there's this little like flicker of, oh, yeah, I mean, I'm supposed to be in charge here. But also you can see her kind of starting to step into that leadership role, mm -hmm. whether she's really comfortable with it or not. I mean, she does take charge. She She's not sure she wants to be in charge, but she does take charge. And her plan to catch a bringer is pretty great. Mm -hmm. When she's looking at, okay, what is the weakest link in this whole apocalypse arrangement? You know, finding, finding a bringer mm -hmm. is actually really smart. Mm -hmm. I love see, I love seeing that, you know, that's good planning. Yeah from faith and then when giles later when giles asks her about you know what time going in the morning she says how about around seven and then she hears her like you can you watch her hear herself say that and she says seven sharp and i just fall in love with her because she's trying so hard she's checking herself mm -hmm. on her own uncertainty and just like like pushing herself up this hill of like, come on, be in charge, be a leader. <laughs> Let's do it. It's, yeah. She's wonderful. She's I love so Faith. great. I think she's amazing. I mean, I've, I've always loved Faith. Um, she's so fun. She's incredibly smart. And because she's incredibly smart, I could really do without the, oh, there's a heel thing when he talks about Achilles heel. Oh, see, I love that so much. Ugh. That's my favorite part because she's so, like, invested in what's going on. Like, she wants to know all of this information. Mm -hmm. Robin has just said, you know, if the first appears to you, it means you're important. And she's like, you know, and he says it goes for your Achilles heel. And she says, no, just talk to me. What, it does a heel thing too? Like, she's she wants to be ready for everything that's going to come at her i see i yeah. love that see bit. okay yes that reading where it's about her enthusiasm and her dedication i do love that 
What I don't like is that it feels like a faith is stupid joke. It feels like a we're going to make fun of the uneducated girl um, with this reference, which is, I think, a fairly common reference that most people know. Um, you know, so, yeah, sure. She dropped out of high school at 17, became a slayer and then killed some people and then went to jail. And so, yes, maybe. Um, she hasn't had the educational access that some other people have had. Um, but I just, I found that to be a joke told at her expense, which I, I don't like jokes told at Faith's expense. I don't like her being the butt of a joke. Um, she deserves better than that. Just for, just for my personal taste. Oh, that's interesting that I, I mean, I can definitely see how that could be her being the butt of the joke but it doesn't for whatever reason it doesn't feel that way to me it feels like Mm -hmm. she is she has snapped into i gotta be prepared for the fight mode and like wanting to understand what's going on and just the the oh hell no there's like one more thing i have to worry about like the tone of that response and then he's he says something I don't remember. I don't remember how he responds, but the way that Robin responds doesn't read to me as you're stupid. Well, I love your read of that because I think that your read is much more generous. And then I don't have to be annoyed that somebody is calling Faith stupid because Faith is not stupid. And I absolutely love her. Um, I love the fact that the first appears to her as the mayor. I'll be with you, firecracker, in everything you do. Oh, oh, because of God. course it does. I know. I mean, my God. And just, you know, and and the thing is, he's talking about how she's always wanted Buffy to love her. He's talking about, you know, the way that he loved her, the way that he cared for her. And the one thing that Faith has wanted that she has been just fighting for is to be loved, to be appreciated, to be wanted, you know, not necessarily in a sexual way. I think that Faith is sexually wanted wherever she goes. But that she is is wanted and respected and part of a team. Like, I think she has always wanted to have what Buffy has. And um, and so the idea that, you know, she went to the mayor and the mayor gave her that sort of, but he gave it to her at the cost of her darkness, you know. Um, yeah. I love all of that. I think it is just so great. It's so heartbreaking and seeing Harry Groening come back and do his thing because he's so fucking good as the mayor. I just, all of it was so it's delightful. Like he never left. It makes me so happy to see him back. I'm like, oh, yeah. he's just right back in it. Oh my God. He's so, good. so adorable and I love it. Um, I also love Faith and Robin as a pairing, I think, you know, I'm usually, you know, like the two hot people who are so hot together, like whatever, but they are, they're just like, they're so cool. They're so strong. They're good fighters. I think they make a good team. They don't have this hate each other thing going into it. Um, You know, they're both incredibly beautiful, like physically beautiful people. They've got this wonderful chemistry. Like the idea that they would get together is so fun. And I really do enjoy that. And I like that too. Like in the third of our three beats of, you know, going from unstable to stable in the third beat of that, after they've slept together, Robin's like, where do you want me? And she goes, by your phone. I'll call you if I need you. (laughs) And he is so put in his place in that moment. He's like, but the thing that I like is that he's clearly not happy, but he's like, okay, you're in charge. And he just doesn't argue. Um, I love this pairing so much. And the only thing I don't like about this pairing is that we only get three episodes of it. 
I know. I know. Yeah. They're so good together. I love the way he draws out the super vulnerable detail from her yeah. that this, you know, she's like, he's like an old boss. And he's like, yeah, okay. It sounds, <laughs> you know, but then, you know, she's, she's a little bit uncomfortable mm-hmm. sharing that personal detail with him. And then he opens up about his mother and I'm like, that's, there you go. Like that's yeah. two people. Being Th- vulnerable, that is two being connected, being supporting each other, together. you know, and they work well together. You know, he respects her. She respects him. I love it. I love it so I'm much. I'm vulnerable. You're vulnerable. Let's be vulnerable together. I it's know. great. And that, see, that's the thing. I always joke about terrible romances being I'm hot, you're hot, let's be hot together. But I'm vulnerable, you're vulnerable, let's be vulnerable together. That is the core of a great love story. There you go. That is the absolute isolation of those two things. I'm hot, you're hot All is right. romance. I'm vulnerable, you're vulnerable is love story. Hey, there you go. You. How story works, people. You're amazing. <laughs> Thank just... you so much for that. I love that. Um, all right. So I have to have my moment in Dawn, right? Yes, we have to have our moment of Dawn I appreciation. Love, I love Dawn. I love that she knows the ancient Turkish spell. She read it in the original fucking Turkish. And I love that moment where she's like, there's a translation. And then she's like, over it. You know, and she just keeps yeah. going. Damn it. Um, I also appreciate that she would feel terrible about what happened with Buffy. And she's the only one who's feeling terrible about what happened with Buffy I find a little bit alarming but you know at least she does yeah yeah and she's still she's still in it she's still trying to help she's still Mm -hmm. you know coming up Dawn always the idea girl Mm -hmm. with the oh there's the spell that it's kind of intended for this other thing but why don't we try it for this and then I'm like yeah all right let's do this thing Love her. Also, love Andrew. Andrew, oh my God. like every time he shows up, I love him a little bit more. Um, Tom Lank, who, you know, has been playing this, you know, kind of silly comic. He's, he's basically the comedy mule, you know, um, and he does a wonderful job of that. But not unlike Emma Caulfield, who, when called upon to bring it, He brings it like when he's doing the, you know, like doing the dialogue from the bringer, he's creepy Mm -hmm. and I buy it. And he's, you know, he's not playing up the comedy of it, but he's delivering that. It was really, really good. And then, of course, followed up with I feel used and violated and I need a lozenge like it's so fucking good. He's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Playing I spy with Spike is another one of my favorite moments. And then Spike just would punch him in the throat if that were even an option. It's <laughs> And then he presents. So- I love when he presents for the, the group and he's like, here is what we found. This is what we know. Here is the thing. Faith handing it over to you. He is. I, I, I don't know. We'd have to talk to Dr. Kelly Jones, but I think that he's pedagogically sound. I think that he is really, he's got his visual aids. He's explaining how everything works. He's defining his terms throughout the whole thing. Um, when he and Anya were teaching with the, uh, you know, with the whiteboard, I think we should have Dr. Haley Jones come in and do a segment on the the pedagogical, you know, potential within Andrew. Well, there you go. <laughs> I mean, what is it? To elevate, to educate and elevate? What is he doing in Storyteller? I don't remember what it is. Um, entertaining yeah. and educating entertaining like and educating um giles again giles is not giles season seven giles is not giles that sucks um but i do love this moment with spike and giles where spike 
in this in the peak of disdain in his voice says Rupert you know um (laughs) I love the way he takes him down by using his first name I love that you know that just that moment and Giles like I I give up on Giles in season seven like I love Giles throughout the run of the story but this is just I don't even know who this dude is. Well, it's almost like we had to have him here because he's still alive in the world of the show. But what is he? I mean, Spike, Spike says it a little bit Mm -hmm. like, what, what are you even doing here? My dude, like you were, you did have this role and now you don't have a role. So Mm -hmm. what? Right. You're throwing, you're trying to throw your intellectual weight around, but Mm -hmm. to what effect? But yeah, we just, Giles just kind of. I don't know. Yeah. Goes off the rails a little bit. Yeah. It kind of sucks. It really does. Um, Xander and Anya. Okay. Love. Like, I don't like them as a couple. Um, but I love that they are eating ice cream, that they are finding physical comforts in various spaces. I like that they have sex. Um, and Xander doesn't say anything mean to her, which I really like. But as soon as I wrote that in my notes, I had this sudden realization that, like, I think the reason Xander is mean to Anya is because he cannot respect somebody who wants him. If somebody would be with him, I think that his self-loathing goes so deep that anybody who would be with him is instantly somehow less worthy. He cannot respect someone who would be with him. And that's why he couldn't respect Anya when they were together. But he seems to respect her now. I think that checks out. I mean, I think that checks out for a lot of a lot of a lot of um, the hateful people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think a lot of uh, I think I think that's a very human thing mm-hmm. of being suspicious of a club that would have you exactly. as a member. What's wrong with you <laughs> that you want me? You know exactly. Which is I think that's a very. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's an interesting. That's a really interesting observation. I think it humanizes Xander's. Mm-hmm. awful treatment yeah. of Anya mm-hmm. really in a in a potentially really interesting I think it could be way. interesting for therapy and here is my general thing everybody needs therapy everybody needs therapy everybody needs therapy including Xander um so Willow <laughs> and Kennedy um you know here's yeah. the thing I didn't like Kennedy in the beginning um I don't like the way that she was really predatory with Willow but here's the thing uh having great sex and they are clearly having great sex yeah awesome i love it i love it yes i wouldn't say great i'd say pretty good i do i mean we do have to give it up for the first lesbian sex scene on network television Mm -hmm. and we gotta actually give it up for a lesbian sex scene on television where not everyone's hands are visible so well done there, Way to everybody. Move that needle just a little just, bit forward. Just a little bit. Um, my problem with Willow and Kennedy is still that there's not a lot of there there. Mm-hmm. Like it's being, it's being framed as this relationship, like capital R relationship, and I feel like we missed a bunch. Yeah, and I know that that's because they're not they're not protagonists, but I still feel kind of like. Uh, okay. Like, I guess they're together and a couple now? Yeah, it's the sweetie stuff. Like, them having great sex, I totally get that. But the relationship isn't earned. Yeah. 
but it's but the way that they're the the way that they keep being framed as this couple that we're supposed to care about there's just not enough mm-hmm. there's just not enough there um it wasn't built so it's well. kind of yeah it's kind of it's kind of and meh. you know why because it's a romance not a love story kennedy desires willow and gets willow but there isn't but i'm vulnerable you're vulnerable that. let's it's, be vulnerable together we don't build it's that so lukewarm mm-hmm. it's not even that it's like and I don't know, maybe it doesn't read as a romance to me, even in the like mm-hmm. one person is, you know, one person is pursuing and one person is being pursued mm-hmm. because we just don't see very much of it. Yeah. It's like Willow or sorry, it's like Kennedy wants Willow. And then suddenly it's like, oh, OK, we're together now. Right. Uh, OK, what? Like there's not even it's not even a if it's a romance it's not a good romance. It is not. It is neither a Come good on, romance nor a good love story. But I am all for the great lesbian. I and I think it looks like it's pretty great. I mean, you know, it looks it looks like they're having some good sex to me. Um, it looks okay. okay. <laughs> it looks fine. It's it looks fine. completely acceptable. Adequate sex. But regardless, it is adequate. Adequate sex. Adequate. Adequate sex is fine too. Um, so I'm just glad that they are having a moment and they're getting comfort in each other and i'm all for it sex positive buffy let's keep going um all right so (laughs) what is your favorite part although i think we've already spoiled this a little bit oh my god we've spoiled my favorite part (laughs) my favorite part is faith saying robin says the the first goes for your achilles heel and (laughs) faith poor faith no just talk to me what it does a heel thing too like she's so oh Yes. She's so freaked out, poor baby. Like there's just Oh my god. Like yeah. she is obviously rattled and now that it does a heel thing, like what else do I need to know? What else is it gonna do the next time it comes to me as my dearly departed work dad? What you know? <laughs> Giant snake of a work dad. I don't know. I just, there's something there is something about her her particular that cocktail of like trying so hard to be tough and prepared but so obviously scared and vulnerable at the same time i just i love her it's nice to see faith engage with her vulnerability she doesn't do that very much so it's really it's really really nice to see um yeah of course for me i mean it's i love what you are I love how you try. It is that whole thing. It is when he's going to leave the room and she says, you know, can you stay? And he says, yes. And I will sit in the comfy chair. And then she invites him <laughs> over to the, I love all of that. There's so much in that, that it, that expresses so much more than just whatever romantic kind of, you know, love there might be between them. There is, there's a real genuine friendship and love between these two people. And I love that. And that speech, I think, is amazing. You know, when I say I love you, it's not because I want you or because I can't have you. It has nothing to do with me. That is adult, mature, real, true love. And I just, I I love it so much. It's my favorite. (laughs) Specifically to delight Lonnie. Made specifically to delight me. Absolutely. It really is. (laughs) All 
All right. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, follow at Chipperish on Twitter and use the hashtag still pretty or as a patreon supporter at any level you can join the chipperish discord group and chat live with other listeners and the hosts if you like still pretty you should try endless the new sandman podcast from chipperish media covering the sandman comics and tv show hosted by lonnie and dc comics editor elisa quitney search for chipperish endless in your podcast app of choice and for the writers and creators out there lonnie has a weekly newsletter just for you Check out Dear Writer at Substack.com to sign up. Not only that, but Patreon supporters who chip in at the $10 and up level get to attend show recordings live with chats before and after the show. So if you haven't pledged your support yet, now's the time. Also, we are almost, oh my God, at the end of Still Pretty and our high and we are planning a finale episode where Noelle and I and Dr. Kelly Jones from Still Dead will talk about the Buffyverse and probably a lot of other stuff. We would love for you guys to join <laughs> in. We are asking Still Pretty fans to send us audio clips answering the question, what's your favorite part of Still Pretty? Send the clips to info at chipperish.com. And speaking of supporters, this episode of Still Pretty was brought to you by the Chipperish Media Producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Still Pretty is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to Abby, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jonathan, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelly, Stephania, and Stephanie. And this week's special message for our power producers, they're just sinners. You are sin. This episode of Still Pretty was edited by Chipperish content editor, Jack Cram. Jack, I'll always be with you, Firecracker, in everything you do. We will be back next time with End of Days, the 21st episode of Season 7. Until then, don't worry. It's far more likely you'll live long enough to watch most of your friends die first. And then you'll die. (laughs) 